Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. Hot dogs are ready. I love that you're eating those. They're so good. Look how cute they are. Yeah, let me see. Aw, Loki, those look really good. Do you eat them with sauce? No, I'm weird. They're like the one thing I don't want any sauce on. I want them plain. Oh, that's a major disconnect between us. I'm a big sauce girl. Hot dogs are like very specific for me. Like there's like, first of all, when I was like only used to eat them sans bun, like I was like a <laughs> bunless hot dog girl. If it's not a boiled hot dog, like Streets of New York style, I don't want it. That was so funny because that just reminds me in high school, basically the road trip down from NorCal to SoCal, you drive by this cow ranch that smells like shit. It's called Harris Ranch. Boycott them. And it's all these cows smushed together, literally living in their own shit. And it made me so sad. So it made me be a vegetarian. And then (laughs) I was vegetarian for like... I want to say like a year or two, but then I went to New York for like a soccer tournament and I cracked on a New York street hot dog. I don't even like hot dogs. Like I don't eat them ever. So it was just so weird that I was like New York city hot dog. I thought it was a tourist must have. (laughs) I mean, look, if you're going to try like a legendary level hot dog, you pick the right dog to like play around with, but like so so weird but here we are and you're eating some pigs in a blanket and you almost burnt your house down is that correct (laughs) as we know i cannot cook at all whatsoever obviously i'm not going to be on like top chef but i'm like okay it's on a tray here we go and all of a sudden look over and the freaking oven is smoking like literally like billowing smoke and i'm like oh no what have i done smoked corn dogs that could be a vibe I think we need to like stop our rambling. We are going to get right into it because we have an amazing episode today. But before we start, we definitely want to highlight Black History Month. And in honor of that, we are handing over the mic to some really amazing Black voices this month, all month long, and covering some really amazing topics. So we're super excited about that. Cat Calvin, literally, Sam, like our favorite episode. I, I mean, I don't want to like... I don't want to shit on like any other episode because like we love all our episodes and all our guests, but like 
this was one that just had me absolutely floored. Eye opening, you guys are gonna be, I, I feel like if we're both like, holy shit, on the floor, like I cannot even believe, you guys are gonna be even more beyond on this topic. But even beyond that, I just like, Kat is just a freaking legend and we are so excited for you guys to learn about her, learn about all of her missions, all of her work and whatnot. And just hear this conversation because it's so cool. Kat is a badass, basically, point blank, period. I mean, the accolades. Let's just go through a little, little list here. So she's the founder and executive director of Spread the Vote and the co-founder and CEO of Project ID Action Fund. She is also a lawyer, an activist, a social entrepreneur. She has built a national organization that helps Americans obtain IDs for all the things that you need IDs for, which we'll, again, we'll get into it. For jobs, housing, life, everything. Going to the polls, you name it. One of Time Magazine's 16 people and groups fighting for a more equal America. Like, okay, casual. She is also a 2018 Fast Company 100 Most Creative People in Business and has also been a Business Insider 30 Under 30 and a part of the Grio 100 and so much more. We would list her resume like all day because it's so amazing, but we really want to get into all of her work with Spread the Vote and Project ID Action Fund, both like eye-opening, wild, crazy, so interesting. So we're going to hand it on over. So we'll welcome Kat and get things going. I started Spread the Vote after the 2016 election. Uh, it was not my first organization. I ran, I used to live in DC. I live in LA now. Uh, I ran, I'm a nonprofit and some different organizations and then got very sick and got a chronic illness and I had to to stop it all and then we had our like fifth snowmageddon and I was like there is a better way to live I'm moving to the beach <laughs> like what what am I doing with my life I've made all the wrong choices I and I moved to LA and I swore that I would never run another nonprofit again. That worked out well. I'm a lawyer and I just got like a boring legal job. And I was like, I'm going to the beach every day and I'm going to chill. And that lasted a whole year. And then I was in Las Vegas doing voter protection in November of 2016. And it was a horrible experience with a lot of like old racism. And I, all day we were like, it's OK. They're going to lose. It's going to be fine. And then that New York Times needle killed my soul broke me and everything sort of went downhill and I, I drank a lot and cried a lot and then I woke up in my hotel room and I was like well your retirement just became a sabbatical and so on the drive back to LA which normally is a fun drive but this time it was really depressing I thought about what I wanted to do but I, I it was pretty quick I, I knew what I wanted I'm when I was in law school, I'd studied the Voting Rights Act. I'd gone to South Africa and I'd studied voting there. But I graduated in 2010. The DNC was not particularly interested in voting rights. I mean, they barely are now. And uh, there wasn't a lot going on. I had applied for a voting rights job at the DNC and realized, oh, this is just a major donor. Like, this isn't a thing they care about. And so I went into some other fields. But then in 2013, Shelby County v. Holder happened in the Supreme Court and they tore the teeth out of the Voting Rights Act. And literally within hours, the Texas and Alabama state legislatures started working on passing voter ID laws, and we saw them just sweep across the country really quickly. And 2016 was the first election, the first presidential election, uh, where we didn't have the protections of the Voting Rights Act. And we really saw that impact in a lot of ways, including voter ID laws, both with the presidential election, but also with state and local elections, which are what I'm really passionate about. And so it was really clear to me 
that something needed to happen. You know, all of the big organizations that we really revere and rightly so had been trying to fight voter ID laws through the courts and through legislation, and it just does not work. They're very hard to fight off. I think Pennsylvania is the only state that has ever successfully fought off voter ID laws. Texas's has been struck down by the courts five times. They still have it. So I realized the thing that needed to happen was that people needed to just get IDs. And then they can vote for whoever they want that will represent them. And then we can change IDs. And so I started Spread the Vote and within about five minutes realized uh, that the ID problem was so much bigger than I thought it was, that I was really just focused on the IDs for voting. I've, I've always had an ID. I got a passport when I was an infant and a military ID at 10 and a driver's license at 16. So I've never had a conscious moment in my life without one. And and I didn't understand what life was like for the over 21 million adults in this country who don't have ID until I started doing this work. And so we realized that this is about having jobs and housing and medical care and opening bank accounts. And right now, most places are requiring IDs for COVID vaccines, right? Like there's so many things. And I had no idea when I started this how many food banks will give you food if you don't have IDs, how many shelters will give you a bed at night if you don't have ID. It's literally everything. And so then we started working on, you know, just sort of getting people ideas generally. Um, and then within that, now we have a C4 and we're working on a lot of advocacy and endorsing pro-ID candidates and trying to make IDs an issue everybody has to talk about when they're running for office. But it, it really came out of, out of me deciding that, you know, that this one thing was the way that I was going to respond to 2016. And, you know, it turned out that I'm glad I had that one year sabbatical. Like at the time, I thought I'm retiring because this nonprofit life tried to kill me. That year off was the reason I was able to get back on the horse and have very four, like, it's been four very grueling years. So I'm very glad that I had it. But I, you know, it was definitely me having to sort of get back to the work that I had sworn to give up. Yeah, I mean, like, welcome back out of retirement. I feel like we should have a little party or some sort of like celebration. That is quite the journey. It's wild. I mean, I'm glad you're back in it. But in terms of IDs, like, when I think of getting an ID or what the problem is, because of like coming from a point of privilege, obviously, is like, oh shoot, my picture looks heinous. I can't believe they wouldn't let me smile. And you guys really should see some of my past license pics. Like, oh my God, that's the highest point of, oh, what would be my concern? But there's so many other issues, not even the tip of the iceberg, but all of the different things that require an ID are so insane. So I guess in terms of just taking this conversation a little bit deeper in terms of IDs, what does the fund itself do? Like, how are you, activating this issue and, and trying to turn it around. Sure. So we work on two sides. For the first three years, we were working through our nonprofit 501c3 Spread the Vote, just helping people get IDs on the ground every day, helping folks get the huge pile of documents you need, helping to pay for everything. It can be very expensive to get an ID. And particularly if you think about it, you can't work without an ID. So the 99% of the folks who we um, help do not have jobs. And so then having to pull out money to get an ID is really tough. Um, and so we just do the work on the ground every day. When an election comes around, you know, we register our, our eligible clients. We do voter education. We help them get to the polls. And the rest of the year, we're just helping get IDs. And then last summer, we started our 501c4 um, because 
you know, we have all of this experience now of working on the ground across the country, getting IDs, and we want to keep getting people IDs one on one because they just need them every day to live. But there are over 21 million people in this country who need IDs. And I did make a spreadsheet trying to figure out how long and how much money it would cost to get 21 million IDs. And then I like cried in a closet for a week. And I was like, there's, there's got to be a better way. And the better way is structural change. And we were at a point last summer where we had the expertise and the capacity and the data and the relationships and all of those things and, and the C3 was was you know set and running well enough that we could say okay let's start this other arm and in this arm we're going to work on changing statewide ID policy on endorsing pro ID candidates and making ID something that politicians have to talk to every single politician in this country has people without IDs in their constituency and yet you have never heard any candidate talking about it even though it affects everything from people living in poverty people experiencing homelessness recidivism rates job rates like the economy everything and they don't talk about it and so we want to make it something that's mandatory and then do you know advocacy campaigns so like right now we're about to launch a campaign it'll probably be launched by the time this podcast comes out to get people to advocate to congress that they have to require that every single state and local government that gets federal funding for vaccines or gets federal vaccines which will be pretty much all of them cannot require id before they give someone a vaccine you know, it's ridiculous. We need to just be giving people shots in arms. And yet the people who are most at risk, people experiencing homelessness, people who are living in crowded situations, you know, people who are uh, recently returned citizens, all of these people who don't have IDs, they're not going to give vaccines to. And then we expect this pandemic to end. And it's ridiculous. So we're trying to sort of do two things. We want to make big change to help large swaths of people be able to get IDs more easily. But we also want to help people one on one while we're working on those longer term, bigger advocacy goals. Wow. I, I, I do not know enough about all of this. When we're talking about, you know, people who need IDs, who really typically are those people? And why don't they have IDs? Where does this all stem from, would you say? And like, who's kind of the main demographic of those people? So what's interesting is that this was not a problem until 9-11. It used to be much easier to get IDs. And I think a big reason that people don't know about this is that it's really a problem that's only about two decades old. After 9-11, the 19 assholes who uh, committed the acts of 9-11, they had legally obtained over 30 DMV IDs. Obviously, they there were many duplicates so they weren't fully legal but like they had gone to the DMV and just gotten these IDs because it wasn't as difficult as it is now and so of course one of our first reactions because we're a very reactive country and something happens and we're like all of a sudden you have to strip naked to go to the airport and we don't think about all of the other <laughs> like in, implications of that and so the 9-11 commission so real ID which everyone has heard about and his the deadline has been pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed but that came out of the 9-11 commission but while they were working on that every state in the union changed their ID requirements to make it much more difficult so you used to not need certified copies of your birth certificate and every time you change your name and all of these things, you used to be able to bring in an ID from a different state and say, oh, I just moved here and use that to get another ID. I'm, you know, it used to be a lot easier. And so all of a sudden, 
it became almost impossible to get an ID as our reaction to 9-11. What we didn't think about was all of the people for whom it, that would make it almost impossible. And so you've got you know, over 21 million eligible uh, uh, adults. Uh, we say eligible voters because there are very few studies about this as well. And as soon as I have a trillion dollars, I'm doing all the ID studies. Um, but the, the, the one major study was done many years ago about eligible voters who don't have ID. So we know that there are over 21 million eligible voters over 18. It's actually many more millions because that doesn't include, for instance, returning citizens who haven't gotten their rights back. There are a lot of folks who are undocumented. There are a lot of different people who need IDs who aren't eligible. But it's in the tens of millions. And they tend to fit a lot of demographics. They tend to be low or no income almost always. Um, people experiencing homelessness, returning citizens, a lot of young people. So one thing that's interesting is that kids aren't getting driver's licenses the way they used to. Most public school districts no longer teach driver's ed as part of school. So really? Yeah, it's crazy. That was like my favorite class. It, see, they didn't have it in my school. And now like full dish, like I was living in Michigan when Detroit like stopped teaching driver's ed in any of their public high schools. And so now you have all these kids who have to pay hundreds of dollars in order to be able to afford driver's ed, which is wildly expensive for a lot of kids. And then, you know, cars are expensive and insurance, et cetera. So I've been in a lot of high schools where I've talked to classrooms full of seniors and asked how many of you have an ID and maybe a third of the class will raise their hand. And so you have a lot of young people. There's a lot of elder people you know we work with a lot of folks who never had birth certificates uh, which you know if you are born at home or uh, for black Americans born in Jim Crow towns like there are a lot of elderly people who never got birth certificates they used to be able to get IDs but then post 9-11 haven't been able to because they don't have a birth certificate so a lot of elderly people we work with a lot of domestic violence survivors one very common tactic of abusers is to lock up IDs and documents so that the survivors can't leave and so we work with a lot of of people who have managed to escape so it really runs the gamut. Um, you know, obviously a lot of people of color, a lot of people um, in the disability community because we also don't really care about people with disabilities in this country. And so we help, a, we work with a lot of different disability rights orgs. Like foster kids, when foster kids turn 18, most states, we just kick them to the curb and are like, good luck. And we don't give them IDs. And then we expect them to get jobs and start their lives. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say, too, I mean, we have literally no grasp, too, on how many people are even homeless in this country. I mean, that's a whole other can of worms. Like, the numbers are ranging. They're like either 600,000 or like 10 million. We're not sure. <laughs> you guys can figure it out. Yeah, it's somewhere in that range, right? <laughs> because the way we do the annual counts is like a fourth grader thought it up. And the United States government was like, this works. It's the most ridiculous thing. <laughs> and there's one group that I forgot that's really important. So we are in Louisiana, Florida, Texas, North Carolina, a lot of places where they have a lot of hurricanes and natural disasters. And every year we get a lot of people who just lost everything in a storm or uh, their house burned down. So there's also just a lot of people who are just living their lives and then like water came along and ruined everything. And now they've lost everything. And FEMA doesn't help you get a new ID. This is mind blowing. I mean, right. Especially FEMA. Like I would expect, I mean, well, I've got my qualms, but like really you'd expect things from FEMA. Yeah, no, no. I but even to like the driver's ed, I think is really interesting because it shows like what happens when we cut our education budgets, even something like that. It's like everything is interrelated. It affects everything. And I think, you know, we just we don't look at sort of comprehensive long term consequences for our actions. So we think, oh, we're going to cut driver's ed 
it'll be fine. But what we don't realize is, well, there are a lot of kids, you know, if we're looking at like Detroit, like we're looking at major urban school districts where there are a lot of kids who can't afford the hundreds of dollars that driver's ed costs. So now they can't get driver's licenses, which means that they can't get jobs now that aren't you know outside of their neighborhoods. And it's not like public transportation is great in a lot of places, right? Like there's so many different things that affect these, these small decisions that we make without thinking about the larger impacts. So it's just like such a topic that I feel like, especially coming from a place of privilege, like we've talked about, it's hard to wrap your head around that this is even an issue, but clearly it's a massive one. And especially, you know, on this other note of when talking about homelessness, I mean, I also live in California where we are just shrouded by this plague of homelessness and it's really tough to see. I feel like I'm always driving around and seeing it and just like thinking about what the solution is and it's it's tough, but I think this is definitely one that could help that. And so what is the process to get homeless people IDs and is there even one and if there's not, what do we need to do to get homeless people IDs in this country? Yeah, I mean, so I always say that our staff and volunteers are half social worker and half Sherlock Holmes because uh, it's a lot of you know, a lot of investigation. You know, basically we do intake with a client and we go through, OK, you need one of these and two of these and one of these and three of these, et cetera. How many do you have? And then we make a list of everything we don't have. And then we say, OK, you need a birth certificate. Well, in almost every state, if you go to Vital Records and ask for a birth certificate, they're going to ask you for ID. So you can't do that. So we had to find this very complicated, very very expensive way of going around vital records to get an ID. It costs 50 to $90, depending on the state. It's ridiculous, but we have to do that. Um, same thing, like trying to get a social security card when you don't have an ID is a nightmare. Once one of our volunteers finally just dissolved into tears and the social security agent was like, fine, you could have one. And then I was like, wait, so we're just going to start crying and this is going to work? You're like, all right, that's a new tactic. Let's start training this. <laughs> exactly. It's like everybody start learning to cry on demand. But it really just, you know, we have to go through with each person and do everything from sometimes we have to get paperwork from the departments of corrections or we've gotten school records from 1942 from rural schools in Georgia or medical records. We deal with people who were born overseas and having to get overseas birth certificates when after Maria, we had a whole street team in Puerto Rico because we worked in Orlando, which had a lot of Puerto Rican evacuees. But uh, Puerto Rico required that somebody be on hand in person to get documents notarized so we had to have people (laughs) who were in Puerto Rico to get things notarized and send it to us in Florida so it just is really a matter of us looking at each person's circumstances and saying okay what are the things we have to do to get you all of the documents you need to get an ID and then just working through it and getting on the phone with whoever we have to get on the phone with finding whatever you know each DMV has all the different requirements and every state is different for what they'll accept for proof of residency and proof of identity and et cetera. And we just have to, you know, work through until we get each thing for each person. That is wild. Talk about some barriers to entry. I mean, my God. It is. And it's entry to everything from just having a place to sleep at night and getting a job to in 36 states being able to vote right so it's which is a constitutional right you should be able to do that whether you have an id or not but it, it is a barrier to everything and we're the only country that does this every other developed country and most developing countries they just have a national id and you just get it and when i try to talk to my friends who live in other countries they do not understand what i do for a living they're always like they're always like wait i'm sorry what do you mean you have to help people get ID? I, I don't know what. And it's really frustrating because I try to explain what I do. And they're like, well, this seems like a useless job. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. 
the country I live in. No, I mean, look at me. I'm sitting here absolutely baffled at this conversation. So clearly there's a disconnect with us, you know, U.S. citizens too on this topic, but glad we're talking about it. Jeez. But also moving forward, we definitely want to get into like the lobbying side of what you guys do and trying to change all these laws and not only, you know, help these individuals get IDs, but how do we make it on a bigger scale, just easier in general, so people can go do that, do it themselves. And that's kind of where lobbying comes in, right? So what do you guys do to lobby some of these government officials and how, how do you do that? Yeah, I mean, basically we're, tr- we're trying to make it easier for people to get ID so they don't have to jump through these hoops. And so what we're doing is working with different states on different ways than they can do that, right? So whether it's making IDs free for everybody experiencing homelessness or for veterans, the number of veterans who we have to help get IDs is bullshit and it's frustrating and it's absolutely ridiculous. I'm they're freaking veterans, but they have to come to us to help get IDs before they can even get a lot of their VA benefits. It's it's don't get me started. So, you know, what we want to do is say, hey, let's make IDs free for that sort of low-hanging fruit they can do for vets. Make it free for people experiencing homelessness. You know, Delegate Aird is this incredible woman in Virginia who worked really hard and they pushed past a bill that went into effect last July in Virginia where returning citizens will get IDs when they get out of prison. This is a thing that should seem logical, but we work with so many different prisons. We work with the entire Florida Department of Corrections to help get people IDs right when they get out because states don't do that. They just kick you out of prison with nothing. And then they say, get a job, get a place to live. Don't go back to those people who got you in trouble, which is, you know, your community and good luck. And then they're standing around and they don't have an ID. And so then we wonder why we have high recidivism rates. And so we want to make it automatic so that states just issue IDs. They can. It's very easy. I know this because I work with jails and the DMV will just walk in and show up and they make it so easy, but they make us do the work and pay for it. I would love to get to a point where states are just immediately automatically issuing IDs to 18 year olds, you know, where we don't have to go through any of these things. I'd like to roll back some of these 9-11 protections that are just overkill and that are making it so difficult for people to get IDs. We are trying to help states change those laws. I'm and then at the same time, one of the things we're really working on is helping to get pro-ID candidates elected in the first place to make that easier. You know, making this an issue people have to think about, getting people into office who care about these issues, who care about these demographics, who then are going to be the delegate heirs who push these things forward. And so that we then have an easier time of getting these these laws passed because we now have people in the state house who really care about these issues. Absolutely. It's interesting, too. It seems so obvious to me that the economic benefit of everyone having IDs would be huge. So it's interesting to see that perhaps the conservative policies that have come across in terms of IDs and suppressing votes seems to be more important than the economic issues that they seem to run on. Yes, for sure. And I mean, I think it's really important to note that the ID issue, real ID, all of that, that was bipartisan. Every single person on both sides of the aisle way overreacted after 9-11. And so that is a bipartisan issue. The voter ID issue, for the most part, is Republican. I mean, Rhode Island is a triple D state and they have uh, very strict voter ID laws. But for the most part, it has been something that the Republican Party very successfully strategized and pushed and passed in a lot of states. But it is absolutely an economic issue. The most common things that people say to us when they first get an ID, one, they say, I'm a person again, because you're just not a person in this country without one. And the second thing they do is ask our volunteers, can you take me somewhere to apply for a job? 
because that's what people people want to work. And so it's, you know, if we help people get these IDs, they can get jobs. They can find a place to live when there are you know, housing placement services, right, with um, shelters and in communities or whatever. But you have to have an ID to get one. So we work with a lot of organizations that have opportunities for jobs, that have opportunities for housing, but they can't give it to people without IDs and they don't have the capacity or ability to get people IDs. And so if you're thinking about how do I increase the economic uh, output of my state or my community, how do I decrease homelessness? How do I decrease petty crime? How do I reduce recidivism? How do I reduce the, you know, the demand on food banks and shelters? Get people an ID. And most of the people we help are people who want to work. They're of working age. They have a real desire to do it. And they just haven't been able to get that one thing that would make it possible. Right. Can you also kind of speak on the different layers to this and to what you guys do? I mean... Obviously, like we've talked about, there is the layer of getting people IDs who need them and those vulnerable populations who need them. There's the layer of lobbying to change these laws so that people can more easily get IDs. And then there's also this kind of voter ID arm to what you guys do, where you're trying to kind of combat voter ID laws because it's a constitutional right. So how how do these all connect? Well, it's two different issues, right? Like, no, you shouldn't have an ID to vote, but as long as you need an ID to vote, but also to get a job and a place to sleep at night, then you should be like, you should get an ID, right? Like it's, we could get rid of voter ID laws in every single state tomorrow. We would still have to work to help people get IDs because they need them for their lives and like COVID vaccines and all the ridiculous crap that we require IDs for. So that I think is a, is a separate issue. When it comes to voter ID laws, the argument for them has always been a lot of sort of BS about uh, voter fraud. But every study on the planet has shown that voter fraud just doesn't exist. It's just it's not a thing. It's not happening. People are not walking in person into uh, voting booths and asking for somebody else's name to get an ID, etc. Right. Like, it's just not a thing. We have plenty of on the record statements on video and interviews from people who are pro voter ID laws saying we need these because if these people vote, they won't vote for us recordings of people saying this with their own mouths, right, that we know that this is really what it's about. And you can see by who who's impacted by voter ID laws that the vast majority of them are people who would vote the current people in power out of power. And all of this is about retaining power, right? That's what this actually is. That's also a big reason that there aren't a lot of huge fights and haven't been a lot of huge fights about this from Democratic incumbents because incumbents are incumbents and they have power and they want to keep power. And when new people vote, they vote for new people, right? All of AOC's voters were new voters, right? So, you know, we need to get rid of voter ID laws because voting is a constitutional right that you absolutely should not need. And by the way, the 24th Amendment bans poll taxes, and this is a poll tax. So, like, we already have a constitutional amendment that bans this practice, but we do it anyways because, I don't know, we had someone breaking the emoluments clause for four years and SCOTUS isn't going to do anything about that. The law means nothing. That's the first thing you learn in law school is that the law actually doesn't exist. It's just how the judge felt that day. Um, and then they're like, so now we're going to spend three years teaching you about the law, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's, it's literally just who the judge is. And so, so we need to get rid of voter ID laws because it's a constitutional right to vote. But people still need ID. IDs in this country because we're never going to stop requiring IDs for all of these things. Yeah. 
And how does real IDs come into play with this whole conversation? Real IDs are the freaking bane of my existence. So here's what happened. I'm the the, the 9-11 commission said, holy crap, these friggin' terrorists got all these IDs. We got to do something. We got to make it harder. Got to make people start taking off their shoes in airports and get make IDs impossible to get. And so they created real IDs. They made the dumbest possible choice and said, we'll put a yellow star on all of them. And so when Real ID went into effect in Florida, we got a lot of terrified calls from people who were like, why is there a yellow star on my ID? And I was like, I am so sorry, ma'am. My mother refuses to get one <laughs> because I mean, who the fuck does that? Basically what they are, they're you know enhanced IDs. First of all, one thing you don't know is that your DMV ID, whether it's a driver's license or a walker's ID, it has so many more security measures in it than it did before 9-11. First of all, when they take that ugly picture of yours, they put it into a federal database and they check it against every other ugly picture of yours to make sure it's yours. And then they save it in that database. Your ID is now like a dollar bill. It has so many different enhanced security things in it, which is great. Fine. Do that. Uh, But now with Real ID, they basically what they've done is they've added more of the same type of paperwork. So more proofs of identity or residency or whatever that you now will have to show to get this gold star ID that will allow you to fly and to uh, go into federal buildings are really two of the big things and some other things. Uh, In 2001 or whenever the commission report came out, they said they wanted every state to put this in effect in 2005. And the states were like, that's absolutely not going to happen. This is America. We can't operate anything that quickly. We don't have any project managers in the United States yeah. government. <laughs> they're like, you didn't know we're like really inefficient. <laughs> right. We, that's not going to happen. So they did, you know, what DMVs did is they very quietly changed a lot of these rules and a lot of their ID things. But the real ID thing, every state was like, this isn't going to happen. So they kept pushing it back and pushing it back. A lot of states sued and were like, we don't want to do this at all. And so they were fighting that and fighting that. And so the deadline was October 20th, 2020, for every single state to have real ID in effect. And some have had it, but a lot don't. California doesn't. But then uh, then COVID happens. So now the deadline is October 2021. We'll see if they keep it. <laughs> I mean, given how vaccine rollout's going, I'm going to guess not. I am. But they keep pushing it back and pushing it back. But, and so have I. You know, yeah. <laughs> well, I. Well, so have I, embarrassingly enough. Because I hate going to the DMV. <laughs> Nobody likes my poor staff of volunteers they like live in the dmv and it's just misery but you will have to and so i recommend as soon as COVID is over just sucking it up because you're going to have to go get your enhanced id if you don't have it already you're going to have to take extra paperwork stand in line and do all the things and get a new id we've had to do this and so, so several of our states have had real id in effect for quite a while and so we've had to do this and it's really it's just difficult it's hard enough for us to find all of the documents we need for our clients and now they've just added two more and it's like yeah, sometimes the things we have to do just to get two proofs of residency are like mind blowing and now you're telling me i need four right or whatever it is so they basically were like how can we just make this a little more of a dickish process Literally. let's do that let's just make it a little bit harder for like no actual reason let's just piss all of you off as much as we can right right now on the one hand it'll be great for what i do because when everyone in america has to go back to the dmv they're going to remember how hard it is to get an id (laughs) but it's a it's a really ridiculous thing that shouldn't exist yeah i totally agree i mean honestly too if i've ever had my wallet stolen i'm like honestly take everything just please like do not take my driver's license (laughs) right 
exactly. Like, exactly. whatever you do, <laughs> don't take my driver's license. I'll lose my mind. But no, I mean, oh my gosh. See, we just have gone off on this topic. We also wanted to talk about lobbying because that is a part of what you guys do. And we want to incorporate our I Have a Stupid Question segment to talk about what lobbying is for a lot of people who don't know, who are, you know, new to the civics world. So to start, can you just kind of give us a brief synopsis of like, what is lobbying? Sure. So lobbying has a bad reputation and it should. As someone who has lived in D.C. and has been to very big parties where major corporations have are handing out free top shelf booze to Congress people. And you're like watching members of Congress get drunk on very expensive alcohol and like do the Dougie. And you're oh, like, no. oh, my God, these people run the government. Living in D.C. is terrifying. That's why I shouldn't run for office because I'm like, I would be schmoozed so fast. Oh, yeah, the food is nice. The booze is nice. I love going to the parties. I just don't want to see any of my members of Congress there. Um, so lobbying has a, a bad reputation. But the reality is every single American has the right to lobby their government, right? And there's some, there's advocacy and lobbying that I uh, sort of, you can sort of get confused, particularly when you're sort of a nonprofit organization that's like advocating for a cause. It really is sort of semantics in an IRS definition of like how hard you're pushing. But, you know, if you've ever tech texted or emailed or called a member of Congress and told them you wanted them to do a thing, you're, you're basically a lobbyist, right? You've called and you've advocated for a cause and you've tried to get them to take action on climate change or whatever. The difference is you didn't do it with $200,000 worth of free alcohol. And so <laughs> you didn't have to register like all of the K Street lobbyists. But basically, that's what it takes. That's what it takes to make change in this country. <laughs> that's what it takes. It's it's money and booze. I mean, and if you're surprised by that, I got it. Where have you been? Did you just get here from Denmark? Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> this is the U.S. This is America. And things work a little differently in this country. I Honestly, politics are the same everywhere. But for instance, when we're working on trying to get um, a state to to pass free IDs for uh, veterans, right? We're going to be uh, trying to get people, citizens of that state, to call in and to send emails. We're going to be meeting with members of the state legislature and trying to explain to them why this matters and here are the statistics and this is why it's important. We may have sample legislation that we show them, look, this is actually what this can look like because they are, first of all, very busy, mostly with their parties and whatnot, but also there's hundreds of bills on the floor. And so the more information that you can give them and the easier you can make it, the more that it's more likely it is for them to say, okay, this is a, a topic I can take on, especially if it's something pretty new to them, like an ID issue. I'm, but basically that's lobbying. You know, you can have lobby day. If you've never done lobby day in Congress, do that after COVID. It's a blast. You go with a group for say education or, you know, I don't know, free donuts for everybody or whatever. And you'll have a group and you'll all go and you'll go to all of your member of Congress and your senator's offices and whatever. And you'll meet usually with a staffer. It, unless you have a celebrity, your actual member of Congress is not showing up. But you'll go and you'll sit in the room with a rep, uh, with a, one of your rep staffers, and you'll tell them all about the issue and they'll listen or pretend to listen and they'll take some notes and then you'll leave. And you'll understand how futile this is and why it takes a very long time to pass legislation because you have to keep doing this over and over again. But you can do that. Everybody can go and just walk into your House of Representatives office and 
say I want to talk to somebody here. I got an issue. The rent is too damn high. And they, you know, they, they listen. It's for, you can, we saw what a coup looks like, but here's the thing. They could have just walked in. Like it actually is legal to just walk in. You can't take over the building, but you can just go. <laughs> like it's, it's your house. You're allowed in. Just don't take a gun. Don't try to kidnap Ayanna Presley. She's a national treasure, you know, but as long as you don't do those two things, you're allowed. You know, and so, so really lobbying is trying to advocate to a politician to try to get them to pass a law or change a law or do something, take some sort of action for an issue that you care about on the side that you want. That's really what it is. Well, okay, next question. So can a lobbyist propose specific legislation? So I know you just kind of ran through, you know, pushing through something or an idea, but can you like essentially write the bill and hand it over and be like, do this? You can. And there is a conservative organization called ALEC, which I am so jealous of because that's all they do. They write sample legislation. They make photocopies. They give it to legislators around the country. They sometimes write in their name and sometimes don't. And you should Google John Stewart and ALEC because he did a really great takedown of this. And then they pass it. So, yeah, you can go in and take sample legislation and say, hey, here's the issue I care about. You know, I really care about teachers getting more money because they should. And uh, here's some sample legislation. Uh, here's, you know, a memo about why. Here's some statistics, et cetera. You can actually take this legislation and you can change it around to how you like it, put your name on it, and then pass it around to your buddies. You absolutely can do that. In fact, they'll love you more if you do that because they don't want to write this legislation. They've got better things to do. They've got parties to go to. Sure, there's booze to drink. And the hangovers to nurse afterwards. Exactly. And writing legislation is so boring, you guys. <laughs> It's the worst. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, it's just throwing me back to my congressional simulation in college. But write their bills for them. Give them some, like, top-notch alcohol. I mean, why would you not love a lobbyist as as a politician, right? But, damn. I mean, this has been just eye-opening in so many ways. Like, definitely one of my favorite episodes, for sure. We definitely want to give you the mic to plug anything and everything so people can find you, your org, and everything you guys are doing. Well, you can find Spread the Vote at spreadthevote.org or at spreadthevoteus on all the socials. Uh, Project ID is projectid.org or at projectidus on all the socials. And I'm at Kat Calvin LA on all the socials. I am recently on TikTok. Same. Yes. We always are talking about Giving TikTok you- on this show. Oh, my God. Okay, I need your thing. I'm giving you a hot take of the day. I think I'm adorable, but the TikTokers apparently are not going to like my stuff unless I dance, which I refuse. So please, I'm at Cat Calvin LA on TikTok. Watch my hot take of the day. I think they're pretty good. Oh, we'll for sure follow you. I mean, we are, our content is, it's not great, but we're working on it. So I don't know. I We're trying to like get a like, fresh young and turn on and just to push out some tiktok content for us because yeah what's your what's your tiktok handle throw it out there i think it's just girl on the go of the podcast see i don't even know (laughs) (laughs) that's the problem my like personal tiktok is literally i i like refuse forever to get one i was like i like i don't get these dancing trends like that whole vibe and then one of my friends was like no just do it and so i made it as like it's like sam cat with a million t's the number 30, which means nothing to me. And I have no idea what email it's connected to or what my password is. So anyways, I that's where I am on TikTok. Yeah. I just lack creativity. So I that's why I kind of also like TikTok is that they have the trends and then you don't have to be creative and you can just do a trend and then hopefully that, you know, catches fire. Did we get to plug everything? 
the podcast. We didn't get to plug the podcast. Yeah, I have a, a podcast with Andrea Haley, the CEO of Vote.org, called Vote the Podcast. We are, we're on our season break, and we'll come back for season two, but you can go back and listen to all of the season one episodes. They're very good. My favorite, well, I like all of them, but we have an episode with um, Harvey Levin, the CEO of TMZ, which is fantastic. Oh my God. <laughs> Wait, I'm obsessed. Yeah, it's so it's so fun. He like got woke. It is amazing now. And we like did the interview and then we hung up. We were like, I love him. Like, I just totally love him now. Okay, I'm definitely (laughs) going to listen to that right now. So vote the podcast and we will be back. I'm gosh, I think just in a couple of months now. I with season two because there is always voting news. There's There's so many elections this year. It's actually wild. There's so many elections. So we will be talking about this. Good. As as you should. Well, thank you so much again. This has been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is fun. For our top story of the week, let's ring it in with some more COVID-19 relief. Kind of a reoccurring story here, but basically U.S. House Democrats are ready for the first step towards a $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill get us those stimmies okay so basically if you've been yearning for your stimmy listen up because (laughs) the democratic-led u.s house of representatives prepared to take the first step forward with a key vote expected to fast track the measure through congress so basically a fiscal 2021 budget measure with coronavirus related spending instructions for congressional committees headed for a House vote that would help unlock a legislative tool needed for Democrats to enact Biden's package swiftly because there is, as always, a lot of Republican opposition. So what that means, basically, Republicans have pushed back on this $1.9 trillion price tag, essentially, of Biden's proposal. So on Monday, the president met with 10 Senate Republicans to discuss their own scaled-back $618 billion plan, so $1.9 trillion to 618 billion it's a big difference a big big one and so he told lawmakers it did not go far enough to address a pandemic that has killed over 400,000 people so we just love joe biden's quote here when he said the risk isn't that we do too much it's that we don't do enough and i think i definitely would agree with that american people have been through a lot this past year and are very much struggling so let's not you know cut any corners let's not fall short White House advisors said on Tuesday that the Republican proposal fell far short in a number of areas, including like funding to reopen schools. Republicans called for spending $20 billion on schools versus Biden's proposal of $170 billion. So again, just like huge discrepancies there. But basically, Biden's package faces a potential Republican roadblock in the 100-seat Senate. Who is going to lead that roadblock? Oh, 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 sorry. Are you talking about Cockwalk McConnell? Oh, yeah, yeah. That was it. Okay, thank you. But basically, 100-seat Senate divided 50-50, but this requires a 60-vote threshold to pass most legislation. So this budget resolution, if approved by the House and the Senate, would activate a legislative tool called reconciliation. What is that? So this allows for Senate passage with 51 votes from 40 Democrats to independents who caucus with them, and then, of course, Queen Vice President Kamala Harris. And so that would mark the first time congressional Democrats have used this maneuver to kind of flex their legislative muscle here since winning, you know, that razor-thin control of the Senate after those lovely two Georgia runoff elections. So 
But Biden's COVID-19 agenda that he's, you know, prioritizing to pass ASAP is definitely probably going to be slowed by, you know, partisan politics we're still seeing with this Trump ghost because the Senate is moving forward with a February 9th impeachment trial, which is definitely going to delay some things. But impeachment, impeachment. So former U.S. President Donald Trump's little henchman, aka two of his lead lawyers that were working on his defense for the impeachment trial said like, toodles, see you later, adios. In shorter terms, they quit. So three other lawyers associated with the team, Josh Howard of North Carolina, Johnny Gasser, and Greg Harris of South Carolina also parted ways. So like, basically they're just all breaking up. Pry for them. Hopefully they have like some good emotional support systems in there. But what really is the key here is it leaves Trump's defense team in turmoil. So if you're him, that's like not great, especially since the trial starts on February 9th. So it looks like a lot of people on his team that are still left will be pulling some serious all-nighters. Good luck to you all. Trump also faced a Tuesday, aka today, deadline to respond to the article of impeachment passed by the Democratic Lit House. Another just like quick shout out. I definitely wanted to highlight that our sweet, sweet little Mayor Pete. The Senate confirmed him to lead the Transportation Department, so he's the first openly gay person confirmed to a cabinet seat. So exciting. It's also kind of crazy, like, this time last year, he was running for president. I forget what day the Iowa caucus was. He was just about to win the Iowa caucus. Look where he is now. He's in the White House. He saw himself in the White House, and he made it happen. Moving on to our, our last story, which... Sam, I feel like we're both just going to have an absolute heyday with because we're talking about a figure and a name you might have seen if you popped on CNN this week, had any news notification pop up your phone with the name Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, like, this is a name that I, like, wish we didn't even have to talk about. It's so bananas. But basically, she is a controversial, to say the least, like, controversial doesn't begin to cover it, but QAnon supporting freshman congresswoman who's been facing a ton of blowback from her own party's leadership, as well as the Democrats, for espousing dangerous and unfounded conspiracies about American politics, and more than that, about people, events, culture, the whole gamut. So in this, it's just like, before we even get to the reaction, like some of her views, because I just, it's like we almost want to make light of it because it's so bonkers, but like, it's also so dangerous and she's an elected official with these views. So just please keep that in mind. I think probably first and like Maddie, maybe, maybe I'll pass the mic to you for this. Like, would you, do you want to explain like what QAnon is? I would love to. I had my first run in with QAnon back in like the heat of quarantine. And you know, I feel like in the heat of quarantine, we were all like really skeptical about just like our entire existence. We were like, all right, are we even alive? Are we in like purgatory? What's happening? And my mom's friend like sent her this video to watch. And my mom was like, what is this video? Watch it. And it's kind of like, it ended up being like QAnon's like kind of recruitment video. <laughs> like if you could imagine like a sorority recruitment video, like for, for QAnon, for a conspiracy theorist group, a cult. Like she wasn't a part of it, but she was like, look how crazy this video is. Basically, so QAnon at its heart is, a wide-ranging, completely unfounded theory 
that basically says President Trump is like waging this secret war and he's this like secret hero against the elite. And they believe that the elite across not just in this country, but across the world are Satan worshiping pedophiles in government and business and media and Hollywood. And so QAnon believers have speculated that this, you know, fight will lead to a day of reckoning where like all these prominent people like Hillary Clinton will be arrested and executed because they literally believe that President Obama, Hillary Clinton, like everyone in Hollywood basically like are part of this global human trafficking ring that like steals children and then they eat the children and drink their blood and it like makes them like young and they get this like high from it. I feel like it's a bad sci-fi movie, a bad comic like book or something like that. I mean, so many people believe this, including her. Yeah. And so like in October of 2017, this anonymous user put like a series of posts together on this message board and the user signed off as Q and claimed to have like this level of security approval known as Q clearance. And like these messages became known as Q drops or like these breadcrumbs that often like written in cryptic language peppered with slogans and pledges and pro-Trump themes. And so basically they literally think that like Trump is the savior. He's gonna save us all and save the world from like blood drinking humans and the elite. So it's literally bizarre. We have our first um, elected official in our House of Representatives who is a QAnon member. This is Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's made statements like saying the Parkland shooting was staged. She also has said that the wildfires in California are Jews shooting lasers down from space. So extremely problematic for so many ways anti-semitic white supremacist the whole gamut it's just like the worst of the worst (laughs) can we just take a minute like absolutely bonkers bullshit and she just got elected into our house of representatives how cute love that so cute except for jkll we're not and interestingly enough speaking of people that are also not so amped about it, but obviously with a little bit more strategic concern behind it, is Cockblock McConnell. Yeah. So Mitch McConnell said, loony lies and conspiracy theories are cancer for the Republican Party and our country. Somebody who suggested that perhaps no airplane hit the Pentagon on 9-11, that horrifying school shootings were pre-staged, and that the Clintons crashed JFK Jr.'s airplane is not living in reality. Mitch McConnell also said this has nothing to do with the challenges facing American families or the robust debates on substance that can strengthen our party. So, Mitch, come in with some some sanity. Thank you. We'll see where that goes, but his condemnation comes also as Democrats in the House have called for Green to be censured for her past remarks or even expelled from office. Green responded to McConnell's comments in a classic, like a very Trumpian situation, a Twitter post saying the real cancer for the Republican Party is weak Republicans who only know how to lose gracefully. This is why we are losing our country. What on earth? Like, what? After like that wild statement, a la Twitter, 
in recent days also, Green has somewhat, quote-unquote, walked back some of her most extreme views, particularly regarding recent school shootings, according to an MSNBC interview with the mother of a victim of the 2018 Parkland school shooting. But, like, literally there are videos of her harassing survivors of the freaking shooting. So walk it back all you want. But if you have the audacity to go after survivors of a school shooting, a shooting of any sort, victim of any trauma. It's just, it's crazy. She was elected into our House of Representatives. And I, it's just mind-blowing. So hopefully we'll see some more people back up the idea of potentially getting her out of Congress and losing her seat because there's just no place for that. We need to get back to a place where we value a shared set of facts. Let's have real healthy debate. If you don't agree with me, that's fine as long as we're looking at the same the same set of facts here. That's all that matters. But we have gotten to the point where these people literally think that there's Jews up in space starting fires in California. Michelle and Barack Obama drink children's blood. I mean, they're not army hammer, so. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's where we're at in this country and I hope we recover. I hope, but yeah, it's a cancer indeed, Mitch, indeed. We also have an action item that we want to loop you guys in on. So our friends at Rhino Rally have created this really, really awesome protest postcard club. So cool. Like snail mail is cool again. You're going to love it. We love it. So basically the whole concept, you sign up for a membership, they're different tiers, and you get a certain amount of postcards that protest a particular topic. So each month is a different topic. This month, appropriately, is dismantling white supremacy. So you head over to the link that we have in our episode bio. You'll be able to find more information as to how to get involved with this membership, how to participate in the protest postcard club itself. So it pretty much gives you like a one-stop shop, zero excuse situation for getting involved with politics and activism. You don't have to go to a protest. You don't have to like stand in the cold. You don't have to do any of those things. So if that's like not your vibe, this is going to be your vibe because you are able to be an activist, but from behind the scenes, there is more information to come on this month's theme and all of the different action items that they're going to have up live and running. This week, the whole month of actions is launching. So do stay tuned on their Instagram, but we hope you have as much fun with this as we are. Well, one more shout out because we haven't talked about on this podcast, the stock market drama, but if you have questions about what happened on Wall Street last week with all the GameStop drama and you don't understand it at all. I didn't either until our lovely friend Delana came on and did a live Instagram with us. It is on the Girl in the Gov, the podcast Instagram. He answers all of our questions and does an amazing job. So go check that out. Please don't watch the first seven minutes. <laughs> Just don't. It, we really struggled in the tech department. Now we know. We're like experts now. We get it. We're like all about it pros. So we will also be having some more Instagram lives with guests, with experts, the whole nine yards on all these different topics as they come up. So stay tuned. We'll of course announce that on the gram. If you're listening and you don't follow us on the gram, like this is a great moment for you to go do so. Girl on the Gov, the podcast. So hit us there, hit us up on Twitter, girl on the Gov one. And then also 
follow us at our other Instagram. So just regular girl in the gov. Slide into our DMs, give us some feedback, hit us the rate and review on Apple, a follow on Spotify. For just, you know, our true loyal supporters, me and Sam have been just talking about, there's a lot of controversy about downloads versus listens in the podcasting world. So if you want to like support us, not only rate and review and listen, but if you can also download episodes, basically the way they track the numbers on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, everything, it's by downloads. So like I only download podcasts when I go on an airplane when I don't have Wi-Fi, but that's how they count them. So if you want to, you know, go the extra nine yards, download those episodes too. be helpful. Well, that is it for this week. Thank you everyone for listening. And as always, we'll be talking to you guys next Wednesday. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.